0: How are we? Good. Well, it's great to see you. Uh, today we're in week 21 of a series on the book of Mark. So if you have a Bible or a device with some kind of app on it, grab those things. Go to Mark chapter 7 with me. Mark chapter 7. Uh, some of you, I think, will identify with this, but growing up, my favorite time of the year, hands down, was Christmas time. And that was due in large part to the family traditions we held to. Every Christmas morning, my family got out of the bed super early, and we opened gifts together, and then we hurried out the door to my grandmother's house where we ate breakfast. And we ate the same breakfast meal every Christmas, cream-chipped beef on toast. Come on, can I get an amen somebody? That's some good stuff, isn't it? If you've never had it, try it sometime. I think you'll agree, it's awesome. Still have the same meal with my family every Christmas. Well, after we'd eat, we'd sit around and open gifts, and we'd relax and enjoy each other. And then finally, about lunchtime, we'd leave and drive to my grandparents' house on my dad's side for lunch. And lunch was always a big traditional Christmas meal, the kind of meal where you'd eat so much that you couldn't move afterwards, you know? And so we'd kind of slug around for a little while after lunch, and finally open presents together, And I would typically get some kind of piece of clothing with like a deer or a duck on it. That was my family. Some of you probably can identify with that. And so I'd try on my deer sweatshirt and then throw it in a corner somewhere and go outside with my cousins. And we would play until it was time for us to go home. And then finally we'd go home and my brother and I would break out all the gifts we had gotten throughout the entire day. And we would literally play until the point of exhaustion. I still love thinking back on those traditions. And it's really hard for me to think of a time when we weren't doing those things until I met my wife. Uh, The first Christmas we were together, I learned very quickly that her family also had traditions. And they were a lot different from mine, right? Like part of her family, one side of it, they would actually get together on Christmas Eve every year, and they would eat and celebrate and open gifts together, which I think is cheating because, you know, they're called Christmas gifts, not Christmas Eve gifts for a reason. You open them on Christmas. But if that's how you want to roll, whatever, you know, that's on you. Um, We would do that on Christmas Eve. Uh, Christmas morning, her family would always get up like really slowly, No getting out of bed early, they would take their time, eat their sausage balls, drink their coffee. Eventually, later in the day, they went to their grandparents' house to spend time together and open gifts, but they weren't in a hurry to get anywhere. Now, I'll be honest, when we first got married, we had to figure that out. We had to make some uh, uh, decisions on which traditions we were gonna keep and which traditions we were gonna change, and that wasn't an easy conversation. My wife and I are both stubborn people, and we get very passionate about things that are important to us, and so it took some time to figure it out, and about the time we figured it out, we had kids, and you know if you have kids, when kids come, that changes the entire conversation about tradition all over again. Look, I say all that to say this. We all have traditions, don't we? Every single one of us in the room. And because that's the case, if you hold to your traditions too tightly, they can create major conflict in your relationships with other people. And listen to me, the same is true when it comes to our relationships with one another as Jesus followers and as church family. Uh, One of the things that I love most about Crosspoint is the fact that we're a church made up of people from all kinds of different backgrounds and church denominations But at the same time, that can present some major challenges because it means that many of us bring with us into the room certain faith traditions. For example, I know because of conversations that I've had with many of you that there are differences in opinion and preferences right now in this room on how often we should do communion. Some of you say, let's do it every Sunday. Others, no, let's do it once a a quarter or once a month or let's do it at home groups. Others of you, there are are differing opinions on how we should do baptism. We should do baptism by immersion. We should do it by sprinkling. We should baptize babies. Uh, There are probably some of you in here that think if you don't go all the way under when you're baptized, it doesn't stick, right? Like if the tip of your nose is sticking out of the water, you climb in and it's round two. Um, there are differences in opinion on how many hymns we should sing versus worship songs. Some of us differ in, in thinking about things like speaking in tongues, Sunday school, what we should wear and how we should dress when we come to church. And then there are others of us in here that are probably better off than the rest of us. It's those of you that didn't grow up in church at all. And so... The only faith traditions you're familiar with are the ones that we've presented to you here at Crosspoint. Even we have certain traditions. Again, I say all that to make this simple point. We all have traditions, every single one of us. And having traditions is not the issue. Because a lot of times, those traditions that we carry aren't good or bad. They just are what they are. The issue is this. If you hold to your faith traditions too tightly, certain traditions, they can absolutely crush your relationships with other believers while breeding in you an arrogance concerning your standing before God. And if that's confusing in any way, I think it's going to make a lot of sense as we work through our passage. All right? So let's dive in. Mark chapter 7. We'll pick up and start reading in verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, this will be up on the screens for you. All right, here's what it says. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, that's Jesus, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. This, mind you, is Mark's commentary on the story, uh, what you see in parentheses uh, they don't wash their hands uh, or eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So Mark ends his commentary, and he goes back to the story. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? We'll stop there and talk, all right? Here's what we just read. There was a group of religious leaders made up of both scribes and Pharisees who traveled from Jerusalem to Galilee, where Jesus lived and did ministry. And it's believed that they made this journey to investigate Jesus, much like they did in Mark chapter 3. And so to be really clear, these guys came looking for problems. They had every intention of finding Jesus and or his disciples doing certain things they didn't approve of. Now, I'm curious. Have you ever spent much time around a person like that? Someone who spends their entire life as a critic? You know, they can't enjoy anything because something's always wrong with everything. You you know, some of these people, if that's you, we'll have our prayer team down here uh, later in the gathering. We'd love to pray with you and for you before you leave. But look, in, in all seriousness, that's what Jesus was dealing with here. He was dealing with a bunch of men who showed up trying to find something wrong and they found it. They noticed that Jesus's disciples were eating food without washing their hands. Now, you need to understand that had nothing to do with personal hygiene. Right? They weren't thinking to themselves, oh, these guys are rough and tough fishermen, or they've been you know, working in the dirt, and they've got uh, unclean hands, and they're putting food in their mouth, and that's disgusting. They weren't a bunch of germaphobes. It had nothing to do with that. It had everything, look, everything to do with tradition. The tradition of the elders that Mark mentions in our passage. Uh, this was the oral tradition about the Old Testament law that had been passed down from generation to generation. Eventually, that oral tradition was written down around the year 200 AD in what's known as the Mishnah, but during Jesus' time on earth, it was still oral in form. The purpose of this oral tradition was simple. It was meant to provide guidelines on how the Old Testament law was to be followed. In other words, it was given and it was communicated in hopes of protecting the law. During this time in history, Jews actually referred to the tradition as the fence of the law. You see, in their minds, it basically served as a barrier between the Old Testament law and potential law breakers. Now, because that was the case, if the Old Testament law was too silent or too general on a specific issue, the religious leaders took it upon themselves to develop certain applications that people could practice when put into certain situations. And I'll give you some examples, all right? Uh, The Old Testament law teaches that the Jewish people shouldn't work on the Sabbath day. Well, according to tradition, that means that you shouldn't even look in a mirror on the Sabbath day, because if you look in a mirror and you see a gray hair and you pluck it out, that's work, and you're guilty of breaking the Sabbath. It's pretty insane, isn't it? I'll give you another one. Uh, Again, this is about the Sabbath. If you're a Jewish person, you shouldn't eat an egg that a chicken laid on the Sabbath day, because that egg is a byproduct of work. But if you did eat that egg, you had to kill the chicken for being a Sabbath breaker, Poor chicken, right? Ends up on your plate all because you ate its egg. I know some of you are probably thinking right now when you hear that, wow, James, it sounds like those guys worked really hard to live in the weeds back then. Yes, they did, but that was the point. Again, the purpose of this oral tradition was to protect the law from being broken. And so these religious leaders did everything in their power to cover all their bases. And the same thing was true when it came to ceremonial purity. In the Old Testament, ceremonial purity was about keeping yourself undefiled and clean before God. Well, as we just saw in our passage, part of the tradition of the elders said, uh, if you want to be a person who keeps yourself unclean or uh, clean and undefiled before God, then you need to be someone who washes your hands in a ceremonial manner before you eat At the same time, if you go to the marketplace, you need to wash up after you come back from doing that as well, because in the market, you could interact with Gentiles or Jews who don't take their faith seriously, and because those people are considered to be unclean and defiled, well, their defilement might rub off on you if you get too close. Are you with me? Here's what's crazy, and this is so interesting. You flip back to the Old Testament scriptures, none of what I just described is commanded anywhere. None of it. You won't find a single chapter or verse that says, wash your hands before you eat. Wash your hands after coming back from the marketplace. But here's what you do find. You find in the book of Exodus, God giving the Israelite priest a simple command. Before you bring sacrifices to me, wash yourselves. That's all you find. And so here's what the scribes and Pharisees did. This is so insane to me. They took that specific command meant solely for the priests. They expounded upon its application. And then they took the expanded command, applied it to themselves, and passed it down to future generations as as tradition or law to be followed. Now, if you're thinking that's crazy and that was only back then, the reality is the same thing still happens today. It happens all the time. There are plenty of churches and even individual followers of Jesus Christ who hold fast to certain traditions that have been passed down to them from earlier generations. And I need you to know some of those traditions are really good. Like, I don't want to paint the picture today that all faith traditions are bad because they're not. In fact, when you go to the New Testament, uh, tradition, namely theological tradition, is celebrated in many places. The Bible actually upholds it as something to be followed, not forsaken. But look, at the same time, there are traditions that have been passed down that aren't so good. In that they've either strayed from or expounded upon certain biblical truths in ways that I would say are harmful and unhelpful. I could give you many, many examples today, but for the sake of time, I'll just give you one, all right? Uh, I grew up in a church where it was often said that you needed to bring your best to God in worship. And I have no problem with that, right? I think that's biblically true. I'm not going to argue against that at all. We should bring our best to God in worship, Uh, Well, one application that some people in our church held to was this, that bringing your best to God in worship meant wearing your best to worship. And so in our church, we had a lot of suits and a lot of ties and dresses and heels. And again, I would say absolutely nothing wrong with that, right? If that's how people want to dress when they go to church, more power to them. Personally, I feel like I can love Jesus a little better in jeans and a button-up, but that's beside the point, right? Right. The problem lied lied in the handful of people who argue that if a person did not wear their best to worship, a.k.a. suit, tie, dresses, heels, that they were in sin because they weren't bringing their best to God. Look at me, look at me. That is an unhelpful, harmful tradition. Because to argue that requires you to add on to what God has simply said in his word because he never said anywhere, no suit, no service, right? You with me, right? (laughs) You have to add on to what God has simply said and then you push your application as the only application. And here's one of the problems in doing that. You push your application as the only application and people don't wanna follow it and they think your tradition is dumb that oftentimes results in accusation. You start pointing fingers at people for not doing what you have been doing and others have been doing before you. That's exactly what happened in our passage, right? These religious leaders ask a very accusatory question, not just about the disciples, but also about Jesus, right? In their minds, he was responsible for their behavior because he was their leader. And so, in essence, they ask, Jesus, Why aren't you making your disciples follow our traditions by washing their hands before they eat? Well, Jesus responds, and he pulls absolutely no punches in doing so. Uh, Look back at the passage, verse 6. Jesus says back to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down. And then Jesus tags this on, and many such things do you do. Now, a lot to talk about there, so we're going to spend some time really unpacking it, okay? Uh, first, have you ever asked someone a question? And in answering your question, they didn't really answer your question at all. Some of us who have kids or have been married for a long time, we go, happens all the time, right? You know what that feels like probably. That's what Jesus just did to these religious leaders. They asked him a question, and instead of responding by saying, well, guys, let me give you the five reasons my disciples don't follow your tradition, Jesus instead responds, and he says to them, you guys are hypocrites. You're just a bunch of hypocrites, Now, I know in our culture, that word, it it carries with it a very negative connotation. That wasn't the case back then. That word hypocrite was simply used to refer to a play actor, someone who would get on a stage and perform in front of audiences and wear different masks to portray different characters. And so by using this word, Jesus was simply saying this, you, you scribes and Pharisees, like you're really good at portraying yourself as godly men before public audiences, But the reality is, you're a bunch of religious fakers. You're pretenders. Your outward godly behavior is nothing more than a mask that covers up the real you. And then Jesus goes on, as we saw in the passage, to quote from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah 29, 13, a passage that these men would have probably been familiar with. And he does this to make his case against them. And these passages, these verses uh, that we read, contain three marks of hypocrisy that I want to give you. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. The marks of hypocrisy are these, according to what Jesus says, heartless living, empty worship, selective obedience. Heartless living, empty worship, selective obedience. And we'll just walk through them so they make sense, all right? First, Jesus accuses these men of heartless living. He says to them, out of Isaiah, you're a bunch of guys who honor God with your lips, right? You talk a big game, but your hearts are far, far from the Lord. So in other words, you say all the right religious things. In certain cases, you even do the right religious things. But the problem is you do it all for the wrong reasons. You see, their heart wasn't in it. And this is a great reminder for us. Please don't miss this. If you're taking notes, just scribble it down, whatever you're writing real quick, and look up here if you will. This is a great reminder for us. That God could care less about our behavior if he doesn't have our hearts. You with me? Let me just say it again. I need you to hear me. God could care less about your behavior if he doesn't have your heart. You see, we can be those people who spend our entire lives uh, saying the right things and doing the right things. But if our motivation for doing those things isn't love for God and love for people, God isn't interested I know I preach this all the time here at Crosspoint, and I'll keep preaching it. You know what's God, what God is interested in? Your heart. That's what he wants. And so you can live your entire life, again, as that person who on the outside, it looks like you've got it all figured out. But if on the inside something is off, there's a problem. You become like these men in the passage who were great at honoring God publicly, but privately they lacked in devotion to him. Heartless living. Uh, number two is empty worship. Empty worship. Jesus accused these men of worshiping God in vain. The picture there is of someone bringing something to God that is useless. It has no purpose. It's fleeting, or in other words, it's empty. And you can think about it like this if you want to just make it practical for yourself. Imagine the person who comes into a room like this on Sunday, and they sing loudly, and they raise hands, and they take notes, and they say amen, but it's all put on But like it's a show. Uh, They put it on to help them feel better about themselves, or they put it on to impress the people around them. It has absolutely nothing to do with honoring God. It has everything to do with honoring self. That's empty worship. And the greatest indication that empty worship has taken root in your life is this. You see worship as an event rather than a lifestyle. You with me? You see it as something you do in moments like these, not as who you are every moment of every day. And it's really easy to understand why God wouldn't be flattered by that kind of worship. I mean, if you're in a relationship right now, maybe you're married or you have a boyfriend or girlfriend, think about it in these terms. Imagine if that person in your life who's supposed to love you behind closed doors was always a jerk to you, didn't talk to you, didn't touch you, uh, was never kind to you, but then you got out in public together around other people and they wanted to cozy up and they started talking real sweet and they wanted to hold your hand. How would that make you feel if that's what you were dealing with? Probably like they were putting on a show, right? Not for you, but for them and for everybody else watching. It would probably also make you feel like their adoration and their affection was empty, useless, fleeting, without purpose. That was the problem with these men. You see, they could turn their worship on when it was convenient. They could turn it on when there were other people around to watch, but it wasn't a way of life for them. It was hypocrisy. And then finally, we have selective obedience, selective obedience. Jesus accuses these men first of teaching man-made ideas as the very commands of God. So again, what they had done is they had taken the word of God and added all of these extra biblical commands on top of of, of what God has clearly said, and they pushed what they had developed as if God said all those things themselves. Then Jesus goes on in verse eight, and he actually accuses them next of ignoring the word of God in favor of their traditions. So hear me, it wasn't just that they were adding on, that was a huge part of it, but the other problem was this, if they came across a command they didn't really want to follow, they would just establish a tradition that would excuse them from having to follow it. That's selective obedience. And Jesus gives them a clear example of how they were guilty of this, right? He calls their attention to one of the 10 commandments, commandment number five, which says to honor your father and mother. Uh, parents in the room, if you have a kid who's sitting next to you, you might want to elbow them, tell to listen, this is important for them. And maybe it'll be helpful for you, all right? Commandment five, honor your father and mother. Jesus also mentions the consequence of failing to do it, which in the ancient world was death. If a kid even spoke disrespectfully about mom or dad, they could be stoned to death. And that's not the kind of stone that some of us think about when we think about being stoned. This was the kind of stone like where people pick up big rocks and put them on top of your body until the life went out of you. And so kids in the room, look up here. Be glad you're alive today. Yes? And don't be jerks to your mom and dad. Honor your mother and father. Now, during this time, honoring your mother and father, it meant that in old age, you helped to take care of them both physically and financially which is not too different from a lot of the expectations put on us as people today. But the problem was the religious elders had created this loophole in the tradition that allowed people to get out of doing that. And Jesus addresses the loophole in verse 11 when he brings up this idea of Corbin. I know that's probably a new word for most of us. And so Mark does us a favor and he defines it. It simply means given to God or dedicated to God. And the whole idea of Corbin it comes from the Old Testament teachings on vows. If you want to read about vows in the Old Testament, uh, open up to the book of Leviticus and knock yourself out. You can also find some of the teachings in the book of Numbers, in the book of Ezekiel. But the basic idea was this. If I vowed something to God, my business, my money, my property, my animals, whatever I vowed to him had to be used for sacred purposes. I couldn't change my vow, I couldn't revoke my vow, I couldn't get 10 years down the road and go, I don't think I wanna do this anymore. It had to be used for sacred purposes. The convenience of making a vow though was this, while you were alive, you got to keep and enjoy all that stuff that you had vowed. Like when you died, that's when it went to the temple for sacred use. So here was the loophole, you ready? Don't miss this. According to this tradition that the elders had established, they said that a son could declare all of his stuff, money and possessions, as Corbin. which allowed him, like if he got mad at mom or dad or didn't want to take care of them for some other reason, he could simply say, I vow all my stuff to God, which would then excuse him from having to follow commandment number five, honor your father and mother. Do you see the problem here? The problem is really evident, but for the sake of clarity, I'll just highlight it again so don't miss it. The problem in these men's lives was this, they established traditions that allowed them to reject the word of God in favor of their own desires and longings. And in doing so, Jesus said that they made the word of God void. In other words, they nullified it by choosing to ignore it and it lost all its power in their lives and in the lives of those who followed them which raises a very, very simple yet critical question for us. And the question is this, how do we avoid doing the same today? Like, what do we need to do and what do we need to be mindful of so that we don't become those hypocrites holding up tradition over the word of God? Well, I want to give you a few answers and these are sequential in order. So the order does matter. Uh, I'll give these to you and then we'll wrap up. All right, here we go. Number one starts here. You need to take every tradition, every faith tradition that you follow back to scripture. That's where you start. You, you take it back to the word. I said earlier in the message, every single one of us in the room who've been around church for any length of time, we all have faith traditions, right? That's not the issue. The issue is this. Do our traditions align with the scriptures or do they not? If they do, that's great. Hold on to them. Like Keep practicing them. But if they don't, and you hold to them tightly, look, I'm telling you, at some point, they will create major conflict in your relationship with both God and people. And so it's really, really important for every single one of us in the room, including this guy on the platform, to take our faith traditions back to the word of God periodically and to evaluate them in light of what he said. That's the starting place. You take every tradition Back to scripture. Now, after you do that, here's what you do next. You ask the why question. You ask the why question. The why question is this. Why am I doing this? Or as a church, we would ask the question, why are we doing this? And I'll give you some really practical questions to go along with this so you hear how it kind of fleshes out, all right? Uh, Are we doing this because it's theologically correct? Or is this tradition simply a preference Or worst case scenario, does this even contradict the word of God in some way? Uh, Secondly, are we doing this because it's wise to do it? Or are we holding fast to this tradition in a legalistic manner? You see, that was one of the big problems here in this passage. These men had created all of these legalistic conditions and put them on top of the law, thinking that if somehow they followed all the extra rules, that God would somehow be more impressed and pleased with them. And again, the scary thing is it still happens in our world today. Can I just tell you, God, again, could care less about your behavior unless he has your hearts. He does not want your your outward demonstration of how good you think you are. What he wants is for you to put your faith in Jesus and to trust in him every step of the way in becoming that person he's created you and saved you to be. Is it wise or is it legalistic? Uh, Another one. Are we holding fast to this tradition because we see the importance of mercy, justice, and compassion, or are these traditions causing us to miss out on those very important commands? Again, one of the things that I'm so mindful of is the fact that back in this time, these religious leaders thought they were doing God a favor by following all their extra rules, when in reality, reality, they were damaging the very people that Jesus came to this world to save. Are you with me? They thought that they were pleasing God by doing all these right things, but in the process, they were keeping people far from God from him. And we can't be those people that hold fast to our traditions at the expense of those who desperately need the Savior who came for them. And I'll just give you one more. Um, Are these traditions helping us to follow Jesus in fulfilling the Great Commission? Or are we doing the things that we've always done because that's the way we've always done it? Now look, when you answer those why questions, you have to be really honest and really humble in answering them, even if it's uncomfortable and painful to do so. And I know some of you in the room, you've probably laid down certain traditions along the way. Um, even in coming to Crosspoint, it may have forced you to lay down certain things. And so I know at times that can be really, really hard. But I'm telling you, look, your ability to do the third and final thing is fully dependent upon your willingness to be humble and honest in your answers. The third thing is this. You take every tradition back to Scripture, you ask the why question, and then you hand down the helpful, and you lay down the harmful. It's that easy. Those traditions that help you in your relationship with Jesus, that help you in in making disciples when it comes to people in the church, that help you in your pursuit of those far from God outside the walls— You pass those down to other people so they too can be helped. But look, those traditions that make you a hypocrite, those that cause you to reject and nullify certain aspects of God's word, those traditions based on preferences that create unnecessary barriers between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ, those traditions that keep people far from God from him, those are the ones you lay down and you don't ever pick them up again. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, I was reminded of a quote that I heard for the first time a few years ago, and it's from a Christian theologian named Yaroslav Pelikan. What a name, right? That's just strong. But uh, his quote puts into perspective the importance of doing this, of handing down the helpful traditions and laying down the harmful ones. Here's what he said I'll, I'll read it to you. He said, Tradition is the living faith of the dead, traditionalism is the dead faith. Of the living. So let me just unpack that for a minute. Tradition is what? Tradition is all those good things that all the old dead guys and, and dead women passed down to us, the church, that are helping us in being the people of God today in this world, right? That's tradition. Those are the good aspects. Traditionalism is the stuff that's been passed down to us that we haven't questioned at all, whether or not it's helping us or hurting us, and it's become dead faith in our lives and in the lives of our churches, and we're just doing it to do it, right? You with me? Tradition, again, is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And then he goes on and says, and I suppose I should add, it is traditionalism that gives tradition such a bad name. Now look, based on his definition, what, what have we been dealing with in our passage for today? Traditionalism, right? Dead faith practices that deny the word of God and deter people and churches from truly following Jesus. As we close, I'll just share my heart with you for a moment if I can. Uh, as your pastor, I personally have absolutely no interest in holding fast to a dead faith. At the same time, I have absolutely no interest in being a part of a church that holds up tradition over the very word of God. I don't want to be a part of a church that argues and debates over things that that we're doing. we got to keep doing them the way we've always done them because we've always done them that way. I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to waste my life being a part of something stuck where it is because we're unwilling to change. Instead, I want my faith and I want your faith to be living and active. And I want us to be a people who says, you know what? Yeah, yeah, traditions, traditions, whatever. What does God say about this stuff? And I pray that we'd always be people willing to do whatever it takes to follow hard after Jesus and to reach people outside our walls with the gospel that he's called us to reach. But look, to be those people in that church, here's what I know. I know that we have to hold fast to old theological truths. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to think that today's message was in any way about theological truth. Because it wasn't. If it's in the Bible, we need to hold fast to it. This is about extra biblical tradition. That's what we've been talking about. We have to hold fast to old theological truths and even some old faith traditions. But at the same time, we have to be willing to hold most of our traditions loosely while willing to lay down those that are hurting us in our love for God and people that requires a lot of wisdom and a lot of discernment and a lot of humility. And it's the kind of wisdom, discernment, and humility that only God gives. And so I thought as we wrapped our time up today, we would just spend some time praying and asking God for the help we need in doing that. So will you join me? Let's just bow our heads all over the room. And I would invite you just to go ahead and even to begin praying for yourself, just ask the Lord to, show you where maybe you're holding on to some harmful things. Some of those faith traditions in your life that have nullified or taken the place of his word, just ask God to bring those things to mind for you right now in this moment. Father, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for Jesus, God, knowing that 2,000 years ago, you sent your son into this world to put your glory on display knowing that he came, not just to save us, but to show us who you are. And God, I thank you that today we got a clear picture of how you feel about dead, lifeless tradition. God, if some of us in the room are holding on to certain traditions right now that are hurting us and hurting others, God, would you show us that? And would you give us what we need to just lay those things down today? To just let go of them once and for all knowing, God, that in the scheme of eternity, these things are useless and meaningless. God, I pray for those of us that walked in the the room today, Um, God, who are wearing masks, we're pretending to be people that we're not. Maybe we've put on some type of outward religious behavior, but in reality, our hearts are still cold and they're far from you. God, if that's us, would you show us that's us? And God, I pray that you would not allow The schemes of the enemy. God, to come into play, don't allow shame or guilt or condemnation to enter in. But I pray that if that's us in the room, if we're those hypocrites that came in today, that you would remind us of your grace and your love and your compassion. Remind us that you gave your son on a cross so that you could have our hearts. And God, I pray again that you'd give us the faith and the courage we need to just give our hearts over to you today. So God, in the next few moments, would you just work in this place, move in ways that only you can, speak to us in ways that we need, and God, we trust you for it. Lord, we love you so much, and we're thankful for your great love for us, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.